And welcome to another edition of Book Talk. I'm Stephen Ussery, and I'm pleased to welcome Jenny Colgan to the program today. Jenny is a tremendously successful Scottish novelist with 35 published books, many of them bestsellers to her credit. She's a versatile writer, having written science fiction, including Doctor Who novels, standalones, and several romantic comedy series. Today, we'll be talking about her latest one in her series set on the fictional Scottish island of Muir, Christmas at the Island Hotel, which is available in the United States from William Morrow Paperbacks. Jenny, where would the Isle of Muir be if we looked at it in a map that's inside your book? Well, it would be up on the northeast coast of Scotland between Scotland and Norway, which are actually two countries that are quite close together. There's a bunch of islands. There's the Shetland Islands and there's the Fair Isle, which is where the wool knit comes from. That's where they knit. So up in that very top northeastern corner, the joke in the Shetland Islands, which is part of Scotland, is always that your nearest railway station is in Bergen, which is a town <laughs> in Norway. It's very interesting because Scottish people on the whole, they tend to have, we have a lot of red hair. We're very pale skinned, normally, you know, quite short. That's the kind of idea of, of a, a kind of Scottish person. But up in the Shetlands, they're all massive and they're all blonde. They're all Vikings, basically. <laughs> <laughs> it's a mix, really, of that, the northeastern islands of Scotland and the kind of western isles, which obviously are on the other side where they speak Gaelic and it's a very possibly a more traditional way of life. It's not a real place. You should never write about a real place. People that then live in the real place get very annoyed. <laughs> so is this the fourth book that you've set on Muir? Well, it's the fourth and a half. I wrote a novella, a short story about Saif, who is a Syrian refugee who lives there. So I wrote kind of his story for a project called Quick Reads, in which in the UK is a way to get to adult learners, adult readers uh, who have literacy problems, quite often in prisons and things like that, where rather than teaching people to read by reading children's books, they can read simpler versions of adults' books. So Lee Child's done one and Jojo Moyes has done a couple and it's a real privilege to be asked. But you need to write something quite short and something quite simple and the funny thing is, when it was being edited, uh, the editor came back and she says, you know, normally we have to make lots of changes to the language for returning readers, she said, but in your case, we really didn't. <laughs> so, I think, you know, I'm taking that as a compliment. I think being clear when you write is a useful thing to be. Yes, direct and clear. I think that's the most important thing a writer can be. I'm not a fan of like Jacques Lacan and obscuritanism. Particularly, uh, you know, students and, and younger writers often think that the more complex something is, the better it is because it makes you look clever. That's not an attitude I think is particularly useful. There's always Richard Feynman who said that if you can't explain something clearly, then you don't understand it. So there you go. If Richard Feynman says it, <laughs> uh, he's like the cleverest guy that ever lived. So it's a good rule to live by, I think. And it seems like Muir would value practicality more than cleverness. You know, for such a small island, it's quite a broad church, you know. I think there's a place for everyone. So how many people live on the island? There are 1,500 people on the island. It's not a coincidence because there's 1,500 people live in my village, which is a very happy place to be where there's enough people that you can find people to get on with, but also there's new people come and new people go. It's not stiflingly small. And I think some clever person did a, a study saying 1,500 is a really optimum community to live in because it's not oppressive in terms of everyone knowing your business but there's always a neighbor and there's always someone to help out so but enough people do know your business to make it a drawback sometimes well of course you know i grew up in a small town on the west coast and i live on the east coast of scotland yeah goodness i couldn't 
bear it. Everybody knew, you know, what everybody was doing. And then as I grew older and had children of my own, I loved the fact that they can wander through the village and they can't really get into too much trouble and everybody would know where they are. And, you know, you have to stop and have a chat in the post office, in the coffee shop. I like that. Uh, It appeals to me as I get older. So how do you think Muir would be handling the pandemic right now? I also write a series called Little Beach Street Bakery, which is set in a coastal island, both in France and in England. There are these islands where there's a causeway, there's a road, but when the tide comes up, it closes over. So you have to get used to being cut off. And certainly up in those northern islands, you're used to pretty hairy weather and kind of ferries being cancelled and everything being cancelled. So I think, you know, there's a certain character, if you like living somewhere remote and occasionally quite frosty. Actually, I, I don't even need to suspect how they're doing because we know the islanders are doing very, very well. Sky's done very well. Lewis has done very well. The Artneys have done very well. So, yes, they are handling things pretty much not too bad. Muir is making a push for more tourism. Centered around that is a new luxury hotel that's being developed on the island. Over the last few years, because I've lived all over the place. I lived in London and I lived in LA for a bit and I lived in France for a long time and I lived in the Netherlands. And and I came back to Scotland about five years ago and it was so interesting to see how much it had changed and become this very modern very sure of itself, very confident nation. When I left it when I was about 19, it always kind of felt like a poor relation to England and to the bigger countries. Whereas now it's very proud and very sure of itself. And we have seen this extraordinary boom in tourism and and people wanting to come and visit and enjoy the beautiful landscapes. And the, the food has got a lot better. Our food was always notoriously terrible and it's really improved with local cheese and fish. And you can eat really well now. So I kind of wanted to celebrate all of those things. And I've heard British people over the years complain about kind of Americans having a quaint notion of the island and the people that live there is kind of twee and outmoded a little bit. And modern life has come to mirror as social media plays a huge role in the book. Yes, I mean, it's come everywhere, really. It's an interesting one. I think you probably, you've got the same thing in reverse. I mean, we visited Memphis a couple of years ago and we had an absolute blast. But, you know, we went to Graceland and we went down the main street and we went to the museums. You know, we had a wonderful time. But it was very much, you know, American history as the Americans wanted to show it to us. And I think to a certain extent, Britain does the same thing. You know, there's a lot of the crown, a lot of the royal family, lots of castles and locks and so on. So I think every country just is doing its best to play to its strengths, really. And I, actually, Scotland is a very Instagrammable, <laughs> is that <a> word? <laughs> Instagrammable. There you go. Instagrammable country. Oh, gosh, I have to say my Instagram at this point. All right, I? go ahead. <laughs> Except I can't remember what it is. <laughs> Jenny Colgan writer, I don't know. I think it is. So what has the pressure to be involved in uh, social media been like for you as a creator? Do you know what? This is going to sound terrible. I try not to take it too seriously. And I'm quite, mercenary is not the right word, but you know, you want to use it to help people to think, am I going to like this book? Am I going to like this thing? And so I post nice pictures. It's like a photograph album. And then on Twitter, I work really hard to stay out of fights, arguments, politics, religion, and any discussions of any kind. If you want to go and look at my Twitter feed, it's literally me reposting pictures of the Muppets. And I play the piano, questions for other people that play the piano. That's it. So I I basically, I try and keep out of trouble. There you go. That's what social media is for me. (laughs) Staying out of bother. Who's your favorite Muppet? 
Rolf, the dog that plays the piano. That's mine too. Small world. Oh, fantastic. Well, he has, you know, like most dogs, he has a very optimistic attitude. And I've really noticed over the last six months when things have been very difficult for most people, I should say, we've got two dogs, which they're normally quite a bit of a nuisance. Every single day, they wake up full of the joy, desperate to get out, delighted that the whole family's at home. And I find them an exceptional comfort, really. I write a lot about dogs in my books. I don't think there's many in the island to tell, but there's loads in the other ones. He's not a real dog. Having a dog that could play the piano would be awesome. <laughs> well, you and Rolf do share a great sense of humor. Well, yes. Although I, I would say that pretty much goes for all the Muppets, really. I'm, I'm terribly fond of all, except for poor old Fozzie Bear. <laughs> waka waka. There's nothing I like more than coming on a highly esteemed book podcast <laughs> and talking about Muppets for a very long time. Thank you for that. It's a little bit off the beaten path. I'll, I'll take it. So it seems with you moving back to Scotland five years ago that your path kind of mirrors that of Flora's because she came back to Muir after a long absence as well. Oh, very much so. Yes, we were living in France. Our children were French to all intents and purposes. You know, my mother got ill and we really had no choice. And it was an interesting experience because at first it was very difficult you know the children had to speak another language and learn another way of doing things and they're very different places and oh my goodness the summer we moved back I think it rained every single day and oh Stephen did I cry however then of course I found all the lovely things about this country and I reconnected obviously a lot of my family are here and that's wonderful and even like a lot of old friends from school are still here and so we love it now. How has Flora reacted to moving back to Muir? Really, I don't often write about my own life, but this was massively a mirror of my life in which her mother also dies. And she is also quite reluctant to come back and then discovers all the wonderful things that she'd left behind when she'd left as a much younger person. So, yeah, I would say that is one book where it really mirrors what was going on in my own life. And actually, I found a lot of comfort in writing it and I know that other readers have, have found comfort in it too when you have to do things in your life that you weren't necessarily planning on doing or your life often takes a turn that you weren't expecting. And it's about how you deal with that and how you pull together to kind of make whatever happens to you work for you. That's really the kind of starting point of the series. Flora and her partner, Joel, have recently had a son together, Doogie, and it seems that she's having a bit of difficulty in bonding with her, her newborn child. Now, this is the fourth book in the series, so you've just given massive spoilers. Stephen, what are you doing? But we're talking uh, about this book in particular. What's that? We're talking about this book in particular. That's why you're on exactly. the show, is to promote this book. And actually, I'll give you a big run-up. Yeah, I think um, certainly in the previous book, she really wants to have a baby, and Joel is not at all sure about it. And I thought it would be quite funny, and you see this happen quite often. People who are desperate to have children and are convinced everything's going to be perfect and their child is going to be an angel often find the experience, which is wonderful, but of course, you know, you're tired and the kid can be cranky and stuff happens, a little bit disappointing. Whereas I've seen this often, especially with fathers who were a bit ambivalent about having children, is they fall in love with the baby. They can't believe how amazing the baby is. They've got a million photographs all the time. I've seen this play out again and again and again in families of people that desperately want children are like, oh, right, well, they're really messy and you've got to be with them all the time. And people that weren't sure about it can't believe how, how brilliant they are. And I, it, it's amusing to me. I thought it was funny. 
yeah, that's why I put that in really. I think poor Flora is constantly like surprised that she has everything she ever wanted and yet somehow it's still not quite perfect, <laughs> which is life, of course. Oh, yes, it is. Now, she's supposed to be on maternity leave, but she gets roped into helping her brother, Fenton, open up this new hotel on the island. Again, I really noticed when I had children um, amongst my girlfriends, the ones that I thought would have been back at their desks within like six months. Oh, sorry, I'm talking to America. Uh, 50 minutes. <laughs> <laughs> six months would be considered a very short time in Europe. But the ones that I thought would be rushing back to their desk very, very soon were not. And then the kind of earth mother types that I thought would be taking their full two years and kind of making organic baby food. You couldn't predict at all. So some total earth mothers that were kind of, oh, you know, I'm going to knit the baby's nappies and they're never going to eat sugar. Within about four weeks, were climbing the walls and calling the office. Whereas women were, who were just like, I'm just going to put this baby in my rucksack. Nobody will ever know. You know, I remember a friend saying to me, you know, she was meant to go back. She had a really high powered job at the BBC. And she said she went round to look at nurseries. And she said they were all lovely and the women were so nice that worked there. And I'd walk out and go, under no circumstances, am I leaving my baby with you? Are you not? You know, she just <laughs> she never went back. <laughs> she just couldn't go back. So that also to me is interesting to write about. We introduce a couple of new characters in this book. And why is Constantine upset with Constantine? Oh, do you know, actually, this was quite deliberate. We've been talking a lot about Florian Joe, but really the book is about Isla and Constantine and it was my daughter who's 11 and she loves come Christmas time the Hallmark movies the Netflix movies she loves all of them twins have got mixed up for Christmas princes that have got in disguise for Christmas you know people that have gone undercover at Christmas and she just loves them every single day we'll sit down and watch one from like December the 1st so I wrote this for her really Constantine is a rather naughty young Norwegian aristocrat who misbehaves himself and gets banished and sent to have a proper job for a living, which is he ends up in the kitchens of this hotel. So I just kind of wanted to write something that she would like. And I kind of thought, oh, it might, it's a little cheesy, you know, Scandinavian aristocrat in disguise. And I mentioned it to my publishers and they went, oh, I would totally read that. <laughs> and then I spoke to my Norwegian publisher thinking, yikes, you know, this might be a bit offensive. So I'm going to take some kind of spoiled Norwegian blonde boy and stick him in my book. But they were delighted as well. And they gave me all the names and all the background. And then whereupon my Swedish and my Danish publishers were really cross with me because I'd gone Norway rather than <laughs> their beautiful Scandinavian country. You said there's not many dogs in this book, but there is one big galumphus of a dog. And that's Bjark. And <laughs> how proud of yourself were you when you came up with the name Bjark? <laughs> I see I'm laughing now. Bjark Bjarkison. <laughs> also, this sounds ridiculous, but I always like words or names that have, you know, so Bjark, it's, he's got a little circle above the A, uh, just because I thought that was really funny as well to have a kind of little Norwegian symbol for everything that I do. So, yes, that was just purely to amuse myself. Although I have found, Stephen, over the course of 35 books that if you amuse yourself, you often have a fairly good chance of amusing other people as well. Um, but yes, Bjark Bjarkinson is pretty much the, the star of the show. With 35 books in 20 years or so, goodness gracious, how do you have time to do anything else in your life? Yeah, do you know, it's really funny that because I was a journalist and we're used to turning out really high word counts. So 
for me to write 10,000 words a week, it's not, journalists will write four or 5,000 words a day easily. You know, when I used to work on a local paper, goodness, you know, I just write screeds. So for me to write a couple of books every year, I have a lot of time off. I have a lot of time to spend with the kids and, you know, I don't have a commute, although nobody has a commute now. So it's, it's kind of not overwhelming. And actually, if you talk to people that write fantasy and science fiction, you know, those big books, they think I'm an absolute slacker. <laughs> they all write like, you know, a quarter of a million words a year. So it seems like a lot, but only because I've been doing it for so long that I started out in the days where you had to mail everything off with a stamped addressed envelope. For a writer who's praised for her comedy in her books, there are a lot of characters in this book dealing with profound personal losses. It's just part of life, really. This is, I've been following Saif, who is a um, refugee from Syria, and Scotland took a lot of refugees before England shut the border. And they came on the understanding that they would go to our underpopulated rural areas where we need young families and we need workers. So they went most famously to Butte, which is a beautiful West Coast island. One of the families, the Syrian families there, opened a Middle Eastern bakery there on this tiny little island off the West Coast. And it was a huge success. It's been a huge hit. And of course, as usual with these things, lots of people were predicting terrible doom. And of course, as usual with these things, there was no doom. Everything is completely fine. But I like the idea that, one, you would change your culture so profoundly and that it's hard for Saif because he's not going somewhere there's any other Syrian or Middle Eastern people. But also, too, that you would meet in these small communities where people really have to look out for one another. Something not necessarily very different to what you've left behind. That very much appealed to me. And I think particularly these days when there's so much rabble rousing and shouting and noise and actually people ignore the fact that most communities rub along pretty well most people get on pretty well you know and particularly if you go to major cities in the UK and you just think all this shouting and most folk just want a bit of peace and quiet and a bit of safety to raise their children so you know that's really where Saif's story comes from but it's yes he started off as a side character and then people got terribly fond of him and I've sent you lots of casting ideas and, <laughs> <laughs> and I'm very fond of him too. I have terrible things happen to him. Every single book, I'm so mean to him. So have the books been optioned for television or film? Yeah, yeah. Do you know what? Things do and then they don't really happen or then they kind of peter out or I don't really think about it too much. But you always think, oh, it'll be nice one day. But who knows? Do you know there's loads of writers that sell loads of books that just can never get a film off the ground it's always the uh, exception rather than the rule although it's always lovely when it happens we're always thrilled <laughs> another character dealing with profound loss is Fenton he's lost his partner Colton and the grief is overwhelming him yeah isn't that awful Fenton and Colton as a couple it's terrible in the first book Colton was just he was a kind of Oh, goodness. You can tell how long ago I wrote this. He was a brusque American billionaire that wanted to build a golf course. There you go. <laughs> so that was it. That was his role was to come in and kind of be a kind of foreign set of eyes and, and a, a funny kind of cultural mishmash. And Finton was was just Flora's brother. And then they just fell in love. They just that's just what happened. And then it became this big kind of love story over the series. And you never quite know if that what's going to happen with that so all a bit Monica Chandler 
So had I known that they were going to have effectively the really core love affair of, of the series, it's very pure, then I would never have called one of them Fintan and one of them Colton. It's awful. You couldn't even say it together. <laughs> I can't even spell either of them. So anyway, yes, Fintan is trying to get over the loss of Colton and it's finding it extraordinarily difficult. And I think I have a really strong sense that there's something the culture's that expects us to be sad when somebody dies, but to get over it relatively quickly, like, you know, in a month or something. Mm -hmm. And I think the long tail of grief is is extremely impressive. I ran into a friend who had been bereaved over two years before, and I just kind of just said, how are you doing today? And she just burst into tears. She wasn't anywhere near ready to deal with it or whatever. And I think grief can take a very long time to process. And I think sometimes we all spend six weeks after the funeral in a flurry of writing cards and going, are you all right? Are you all right? And then we just all get on with our own lives and leave the grieving person very washed up. I really noticed it when my, when my mother died. Everyone was amazing for about three months and then other stuff happened. And after about six months, my father was absolutely you know, it was very, very difficult for him because he felt the circus had moved on, you know, and he couldn't move on at all. That was a little while ago. But, you know, long grief is interesting to write about. There's lots of jokes as well, but it's an interesting <laughs> topic too. Well, and Fenton feels a sense of obligation to make Colton's dream of this hotel a reality, and he may not be quite up for the job. Yeah, I mean, I think that's very common too. People get very stubborn about not throwing things out or, well, this is, they would have wanted this or they wouldn't have wanted that. Or people become very clear about the image in their head of the person that's gone. And it suddenly becomes frightfully important, uh, you know, maybe not to move or, or not to throw things out or whatever. So, you know, Fenton's feeling a very normal, I think, human grief about this. Whilst also being asked, Colton wanted to open this massive luxury hotel resort, being asked to do something he's congenitally unsuited to and doesn't really want to do. So <laughs> there's a little bit of push-pull in the mix. Can I ask you, Stephen, mm -hmm. coming to it fresh, not having read the rest of the series, mm -hmm. did you manage to just find your way into it or was it a little baffling? I think you did a great job in not just dropping me in without any type of context. I think that was woven in pretty well. I think a lot of series authors are really adept at letting people access a story that may not necessarily be the first one. There's a, a thriller writer from Memphis named Mark Graney, who has the, the Gray Man series, which is a, a big hit. And I think he does a great job as well in giving you enough context to make sure the story carries the burden of it. Oh, thank you. That's kind. Yes, no, I'd, I'd hope people could come to it reasonably fresh there's i think we've got a list of names at the beginning and um and how to pronounce them as well because <laughs> some of them are quite local gallic is not intuitive for american english speakers to to read gallic and pronounce it the way it's supposed to be no it's horrific most people can have a a, a shot at italian or, or german or dutch but gallic has nothing to do with the way that we would think of how language works at all i find it incessantly difficult it has the most beautiful grammar in the world. It has this beautifully simple grammar, beautifully put together, but learning the sounds and the words is very, very, very difficult. I know in the Irish variant, just seeing names like Neve, and you're going, how do you get that? Or Blowing or something like that. You go, I have no idea where that's supposed oh, to yeah. be coming from. 
I know. I, some of them, like a BH will always make a V sound. So some of them, you know, you can hold on to quite quickly. But yeah, FH also make, oh, yeah, it's really hard. <laughs> I've studied it. <laughs> As long as you can say hello, you'll get back. <laughs> and how does one say uh, hello in Scots Gaelic? You would say Kimarahau. Kimarahau? Kimarahau, very good. Or you can say Vadinva. Good morning. Vadinva. Vadinva. Oh, that's easy. All right. I'll forget that right away. <laughs> <laughs> so Fenton goes back to Scotland proper to recruit an executive chef for the hotel's restaurant. And it doesn't seem like that's a plum position a lot of people are fighting for. You know, I like writing French people because I lived in France for so long and, and I'm such a Francophile and it's always a joy really to lapse into the, the French English and, and how they speak. It's such a beautiful accent, such a beautiful language. So writing Gaspar was no hardship really. I could have written him all day. He, again, this, this happens all the time. Someone that was meant to have a walk-on part you know, to turn up and shout and be amusing from time to time. And he's constantly, you know, smoking cigarettes and misbehaving. And then I just enjoyed him so much that he turns up more and more and becomes quite central by the end of it. So um, huge, huge fun for me. Also, if you've ever worked in restaurant kitchens, you'll know a chef like that. Skinny and wiry and slightly cranked up and nervous all the time and never seems to sleep. It's a very chefy trait, or it can be, not all chefs. Both of them really don't have a choice. Gaspar has to take the job and, and Fenton has to take Gaspar because no one else wants the job. That's where fun is made. <laughs> Making folk do what they don't want to do, putting them in difficult situations and see if they can find a way to get through. I think you could just call it, that's just narrative fiction, isn't it? Make things really hellish for someone and see what happens. Pile on the agony. I think that's probably what they tell you on those creative writing courses. Food and professional food service seems to be a big theme in many of your books. What attracts you to that as a topic to explore? Well, I do write a lot about food. I think because I lived in France for so long, and it's not an underestimate at all to say that the French are completely obsessive about food. It's just how you live. And there's not a lot of fast food restaurants. They have McDo's, they have McDonald's, but they don't have, you know, KFC or Burger King or Pizza Hut or anything you would think of. And in supermarkets, you can't buy ready meals or anything like that. You have ingredients and you have to get on with it. So you have to learn to cook. And I had my family and I just had to get on with it and actually I found how much I enjoyed it you know there is no tiny little mini market bodega place in France that won't have lamb's brains in the in the fridge you know or when you take the children to school they have a two hour they have a four or five course meal every lunch made by a school chef which will have a salad course and a laiterie course which will be yogurt and cheese and fruit and so much. I mean, we moved back to the UK and in schools here, I think you get 45 minutes for lunch. And my children were like, well, come on, uh, how, how can that be done? <laughs> they simply didn't think it was possible to eat lunch in less than two hours. <laughs> uh, so, so I kind of, I, I really soaked up a lot of the, the food culture in France. And I really enjoyed and I ate some fabulous food there. So I kind of bring a little bit of that to what I'm doing. But also when I was in France, you know, and we were near Italy, so there was French cuisine and Italian cuisine. But if you want to eat anything else, if you wanted to eat Chinese food or if I wanted to eat Scottish food, then I had to learn how to do it. You know, it took me like four months to make a good potato scone, which I'm trying to think of the American equivalent of a potato scone. I don't think you have it. But think of something very American that's quite hard to, the grits or something. Yeah, anything you want to have, you have to start from scratch. So that was fun too. 
Well, I haven't had a good biscuit anywhere else except in the South. An American See, biscuit. I don't even know what that is? Is that like that's like a roll, isn't it, or a scone? It, yeah, it's a it's a breakfast bread. It can be yeast or baking powder leavened with a lot of shortening, either butter or vegetable shortening, and it's in a, a little hockey puck type shape, and it should be light and fluffy and perfect for butter and jam in the mornings. Right. Okay. Because our biscuits are sweet, of course. Like yes. Cookies. Exactly. It's something like that. And when you're away from home for a long time and you just crave it, and you just can really want to have it. And I remember we had uh, little kids next door and they used to always come in on a Sunday because that's when I would be experimenting <laughs> Sunday mornings. After church, come in, see what crazy things Madame Biaton is cooking up next door. <laughs> I had the same experience when I lived in Germany. If I wanted oh, yeah. Southern food, I had to cook it for myself. And that's how I taught myself to cook when I was living in Germany. There you go. See, that's exactly what I did. It's good for you, isn't it? Yes, it is. I encourage yeah, everyone to go live in a foreign country and learn about their own food. <laughs> yes, that's very funny. <laughs> now, are there any recipes in the new book? I can say that most of my books do have recipes in them. This one doesn't. However, there's plenty on my website at jennycolgan.com. And if you would like my very good Christmas cake recipe, then just get in touch with me on Twitter and I will make sure you get one. And I saw a high-powered punch recipe on your website. <laughs> yes. Oh, back for those days when we had Christmas parties. Oh, well, I'm not going to be sad, but I do like a party, especially Christmas parties. And you all get dressed up. And of course, it's cold here. And you get dressed up in something glittery. And ah, it's a great time of year. Oh, happy days will come again. What kind of uh, Christmas traditions do you think are unique to Scotland that people would know elsewhere? Well, we didn't have Christmas till about 1953, I think. It was illegal. So we've always celebrated on Hogmanay, which is New Year's Eve. So New Year's Eve was always the much bigger deal. That was our big kind of day of, of partying and staying up till midnight and visiting your neighbours and having a party. Certainly my parents who've grown up without Christmas, they made quite a big fuss of it for us because it was kind of new and exciting. So the real Scottish traditions are Hogmanay, New Year's Eve, having a Cayley, which means having a traditional Scottish band and this traditional dances that everybody in Scotland learns at school. So you reel and you dance your Highland dances with your partners and those are great fun. And then at midnight, everyone does the countdown and you have a wee dram of whiskey and you take a piece of coal into your neighbour. It's lucky. I can't remember why it's lucky, but <laughs> apparently it is. And apparently you have to send the tallest person with a piece of coal. There you go. Something about chimney sweeps. So you guys called first footing. The first foot through the door of the new year should bring you good luck. So you should go and see the neighbours you like. It's great fun. In uh, the Ozarks, where I grew up, the mountains of Missouri and northern Arkansas. Oh, we were there. That was so amazing. Where is the place that does all the bluegrass music we visited? Uh, is that Mountain Home, Arkansas? Oh, my God. I can't remember. We had such a brilliant time. The music that spilled out of it, we were completely overwhelmed by how much we loved it. Stunning. Stunning. Deep place. roots back to the islands. Bluegrass yes. does come out of the, the Scott, English, and uh, Irish traditions, for sure. Oh, yeah, you can hear it completely. We went and saw some bands and, yeah, it sounds, it's very, very similar. Yeah, it was just all imported, wasn't it? Oh, it's such a stunning part of the world. We ended up in, um, oh, ugh, 
in Missouri. Where, where's the place that's like Vegas, except it's got churches instead of Branson. Casino. Branson! <laughs> we had so much fun in Branson. Oh my God. Every time people ask why we went on holiday to Missouri, I just show them the pictures of us going to the Titanic Museum. Oh, it was <laughs> hilarious. Anyway, they don't get a lot of British visitors, I don't think, but we had a brilliant time. <laughs> But in the Ozarks, the first person to step foot over the threshold for the New Year's should be a dark-haired man to ensure luck. Oh, there you go. That's exactly what it is. Same thing. That's imported from Scotland, that is. That's a Hogmanay tradition. Your first footer should be a tall man carrying some coal. It's got slightly mixed up along the way. There you go. We're practically cousins. <laughs> well, that's and Ozarks for you. <laughs> no. So with Muir being such a remote island and somewhat barren when it comes to trees they actually have to import their christmas trees yes well the most christmas trees come from norway anyway when i was small my father's friend was a ghillie which means someone that looks after livestock on big estates where they do a lot of shooting and, and so on so every year he used to sneak us up onto the estate the huge estate of the kind of country local laird and we would steal one at night time and that was tremendously exciting <laughs> So there's no Christmas tree stealing in the book, but that's what we did when we were small. It was great. You've also written several books in the Doctor Who series. So it seems strange that a person who writes light romantic comedies heads into a light romantic comedy sci-fi thing. I think it's pretty appropriate, actually. Yeah, I don't. I mean, I write sci-fi. I write for teenagers. I write for children. I write a lot of Doctor Who when they ask me. And honestly, I think genre is something that other people kind of denote they bestow upon you. There you go. I mean, certainly when I was starting out, I came from a comedy background. I had worked in comedy. I knew a lot of comedians and I thought I was a comic writer and I was kind of informed that I wasn't. I was a, a, a woman's romance writer, you know. These are genre, which I don't really believe in anyway, but genre is kind of something that other people say that you are. I just write stories and sometimes they've got the doctor in them and sometimes they've got aliens in them and sometimes they've got a community of people on an island in them. That's all that's different, really. Well, Constantine and Saif are aliens. And... Yeah, well, there you go. Strangers in a new environment is almost the definition of any book you can think of, really. Yeah, Stranger um, Comes to Town so is the classic way to start a book. Stranger Comes to Town. That's right. I forgot there's a formal phrase for it. Yes, a stranger comes to town. That's a good one. So, yeah, I mean, you know, the doctor is always a stranger that comes to town. And in fact, in many of my books, they're about people finding new lives for themselves, often away from big cities or difficult situations where they have to start from scratch, which is a scary thing to do to start your life over when you're a grown up and things haven't worked out so well. So I guess from that perspective, you know, that's very much the driving force of starting over and, and trying something new and being quite brave with your life is something I like to write about. So what do you have queued up next in the uh, publishing pile? It's really fun, this. I am really fond of it. Funnily enough, what we were discussing about long grief, and it's someone who's kind of come through the, this kind of difficult period and she feels that everybody else is kind of happily marching on and she's finding it very difficult. And she needs some peace and quiet. So she tries to get away to somewhere extremely quiet and ends up living next door to the loudest, noisiest piano teacher you can possibly imagine. And her life goes from kind of, you know, looking for calm and, and, and quiet and headspace to being an absolute maelstrom of terrible contemporary Russian music. And it's bittersweet, but really it's very funny. It's a real mismatched comedy of errors. And I've had an absolute 
blast writing it. And I hope, you know, this time particularly something cheering and, and hopefully warm and hopefully funny is going to be a bit of a tonic for readers. I really hope so. Ginny Colgan is the author of Christmas at the Island Hotel, which is available in the United States from William Morrow Paperbacks. I'm Stephen Ussery, and this is Book Talk, and a happy holiday season to all.